We don't know where we are in the Donald Trump story right now. We know how Watergate ends. It ends with Nixon's resignation and Nixon leaves office. We might be still in the early stages of Donald Trump's influence on American politics. If he returns to office next year and then, you know, doesn't leave office, we might look back on the first four years of Donald Trump's presidency in his first term as, you know, the good old days. That is Garrett Graff. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and this is American Crisis, a podcast that looks at the subject of whether journalism can save or help to save democracy through the lens of the twin lenses of January 6th, 2021, and 50 years previous, the Watergate scandal. By the way, all our episodes live over at margaretsullivan.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free, so each episode of American Crisis lands right in your email. That's margaretsullivan.substack.com. So I'm really so pleased to be able to offer you this conversation with Garrett Graff, who is such an articulate and erudite uh, writer and speaker. Garrett is also an important American journalist. He is a former editor of Politico magazine and the former editor-in-chief of Washingtonian magazine in Washington, D.C., and is you know, he defines himself, I think, largely as a magazine writer as well as as an author. The reason that I asked him to come on the podcast, the most immediate reason, was that he wrote a book called Watergate, A New History, which came out just a couple of years ago, and is really the definitive modern look at Watergate in the wake of things we didn't know when earlier Watergate books were, were coming out. For example, who the famous source Deep Throat actually was. But Garrett Graff has also written important books about other elements of or other times in American history, including an oral history of 9-11. Um, he's written a book about the John F. Kennedy assassination. He's written a book about the Mueller investigation. And he is an expert on Russian interference into the 2016 election. So for many reasons, he's the perfect guest in many ways for us today. And I just want to add that this conversation, which is coming up, was one that was really important to me and very much enlightening for me. Changed my mind about some things, surprised me in some ways, and I just found it very stimulating. I hope you will, too. So welcome to Can Journalism Save Democracy? Garrett Graff very thrilled to have you with me because of everything that you've studied and written. Um, and just to introduce you a little bit to the podcast audience, um, I guess the reason that I'm asking you to do this today is because of your book, Watergate, A New History, which I love, um, but also your background, which includes having been an editor at Politico and the top editor, I believe, at uh, Washingtonian Magazine. Mm -hmm. And you teach or have taught at Georgetown, still teaching there? Not in a couple of years. Uh-huh. But have taught at Georgetown and yep. author of 
a number of books about American current events and history. So, yep. um, so let's talk about how journalism affected Watergate. And I guess the the question, one of the questions on my mind is that I just like to hear you expound on, I guess, is would Watergate have ever unfolded the way it did without the Washington Post's reporting? Would it have ever been a thing? Would Nixon have endured? You know, what, how, take us through it a little bit. How did the journalism affect what ultimately the way it unspooled? It's a great question because the journalism myth uh, and mythology of Watergate is really central to our nation's fascination with it. It, it is a, a, you know, the the Pulitzer Prize winning duo of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein are so central to that story. And in part, it, that's because of the All the President's Men movie, um, Robert Redford and right. uh, Dustin Hoffman and Jason Robards playing Ben Bradley, the Washington Post editor. Um, you know, I'm a child of the 1980s. I grew up with that as the, you know, pinnacle of American journalism. And I went back a couple of years ago, um, as you sort of said in your introduction, um, you know, I'm a magazine writer today. I'd spent the Trump years covering, uh, the Mueller investigation and the Russian attack on the 2016 election. Most of my writing is around national security and cybersecurity. I'd actually written a biography of Bob Mueller when he was FBI director. And that got me interested in the question of Watergate. And when was the last time we as a nation confronted a corrupt and criminal president? And how did things work back then? And so my goal with this book was to actually go back and retell the story of Watergate soup to nuts in a narrative history, which believe it or not, had been not done in about 30 years and significantly had not been done since several major developments in our understanding of that event transpired, including the outing of Deep Throat as FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt. And um, just you know, just in, for those who may not have followed this closely, Deep Throat was Bob Woodward's big source uh, in Watergate the, and in the movie, yeah. the guy that he met in the in the parking garage and with a lot of cloak and dagger around it. Exactly. And that in a way that is somewhat self-evident, once you understand who Deep Throat is, it really changes the narrative of Watergate. And so my goal was to try to retell this story, hence the name of the book, Watergate, A New History. And what you come out with now with really 50 years of hindsight and further revelations is that the journalism was key to our understanding and the public attention for Watergate and that Woodward and Bernstein absolutely matter, but not in the way that history remembers and that actually more accurately they are part of a constellation of about a half dozen journalists who all 
played a key role in keeping the Watergate story alive from really the, the burglary, of course, June 17th, 1972. Um, and it was the reporters who really kept the story going through from about July of 72 through January of 73. And by January of 73, you saw enough momentum inside the, you know, the trials of the perpetrators, the congressional interests, um, and then the wider press corps that uh, Watergate had really sort of taken on a life of its own. Um, and one of the sort of amusing aspects of it is... Woodward and Bernstein are actually almost entirely absent from the second year of Watergate because they go off to write all the president's men. Um, and that sort of as this story is chugging through, um, you know, the part of it that we're actually living through 50 years later this fall, um, you know, the including the Saturday Night Massacre, the firing of uh, special prosecutor Archibald Cox, and the battle over the White House tapes, you know, there's almost no Woodward and Bernstein to be seen. But that what you see as you look back in that fall of 72 is that Woodward and Bernstein and the Washington Post really helped keep the story alive sort of iteratively month to month. But interestingly, arguably, they are not responsible for any of the three biggest stories that break Watergate wide open over the course of July 72 through uh, January 73. Um, and that, in fact, it's reporters at the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times that break the first reports of the money trail back to the Nixon headquarters, um, break the story um, it's a Los Angeles Times duo, um, including their sort of famous Washington uh, bureau chief, James Nelson, or uh, Jack Nelson, um, and that break the word of uh, the FBI's major cooperating witness uh, and sort of get the first person reporting from inside the burglary team in uh, October 1973. And then it's actually Seymour Hirsch, fresh off of his, you know, early career scoops around the Miley massacre uh, in Vietnam, then recruited to the New York Times to sort of help break the Watergate story open, who comes up with the first reports of the hush money being paid to the Watergate burglars, um, just as the Watergate burglars are going on trial in January 1973. You know, I, I recently had Len Downey uh, as, as, as a guest in my class at Duke and the classes on the same subject, Can Journalism Save Democracy? And he was, you know, not the key editor, but an editor on the Watergate stories. And he said that despite the competitiveness that journalists feel with each other, he was very, very happy that the New York Times broke that story that you just mentioned because it kept the Post from feeling as alone as they had, and it kind of uh, validated a lot of the work that they'd 
that they had been doing. So it was a kind of a weird feeling of, uh, oh, great, we've been beaten on a story, which journalists don't normally feel. There ends up being some really sort of fun, competitive, friendly tension uh, between Seymour Hirsch and Bob Woodward as the story ends up uh, unfolding. And the two of them actually get together uh, once a week to play tennis through the spring of 73 as they are competing on the story. And they would sort of uh, have they would play tennis and then have dinner to talk about their reporting for the week. Mm hmm. So do you think that the overall Watergate story and scandal uh, has become overly identified and, and too much so and negatively so with with, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and the movie and the and the book uh, and the Washington Post even generally? Is it, it you know, it, it certainly is very identified with it. Is that something that's historically incorrect and wrong? Uh, it, it is. And I, I think it's a great question. And it's one that I think really gets to the heart of the subject that you're talking about and sort of the, the overarching question here, which is the w story that we tell ourselves as a country of Watergate is, you know, Watergate burglary. Woodward, Bernstein, John Dean, yada, 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 Nixon resigns. Alexander Butterfield. Uh, yeah. And that that's really very particularly the story that the movie plays, um, you know, that it sort of skips ahead from their reporting in the fall of 72 and spring and winter of 73. It, to Nixon resigning August 9th, 1974. There's a lot that happens in the rest of that. And one of the things that I say when I talk about Watergate today is, to me, Watergate is this incredible story of, of power and how the system of American constitutional checks and balances actually works in 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 process. And that what you actually see in Watergate is that it takes every part of the American system playing its distinct role in order to force Richard Nixon from office. And if one of those things hadn't happened, the whole thing could have dissolved, right? It not just could have, but would, would have. have. Yeah. That, it, it, that it takes, you know, the journalists, the local police, the FBI, the local prosecutors, the Justice Department leadership, the uh, the the district, the federal district courts, the federal appeals courts, the U.S. Supreme Court. It takes the House. It takes the Senate. Um, each of them playing a very distinct role in the constitutional process of uh, accumulating evidence, of bringing charges, of conducting investigations, of bringing an impeachment inquiry, of you know approving an impeachment inquiry, and that it takes also in every stage of that congressional pressure 
the legislative branch were, it took both Republicans and Democrats. And that one of the things that really stands out when you go back and you look at Watergate is that you see the Republicans in Watergate understanding that they that their sort of most important role was not as members of the president's political party, but as members of a co-equal branch of government that were interested in holding the abuses of the executive branch to account. And that they were acting as legislators first and Republicans second. And so to me, the sort of sad and historically untrue aspect of the Woodward and Bernstein lionization around Watergate is the way that it simplifies the Watergate story to two heroes, when in fact, there are dozens of heroes who play an incredibly critical role in this from the um, you know White House Special Prosecution Force to the Senate Irvin Committee to the House Impeachment Committee and the Rodino Committee um, sort of straight through and had any one of those not done the thing that they were constitutionally assigned to be doing, Nixon would have, you know, wound up his presidency successfully on noon on January 20th, 1977. He would have skated. He would have, he would have skated. And and by the way, I assume you, I'm skipping ahead a little bit in our conversation. Uh, had Nixon faced anything like today's media environment, I think that Nixon skates as well. That, you know, if there was anything like Fox News that was out there spreading conspiracy theories, you know, giving voice to, uh, giving voice uncritically to Nixon and Nixon's backers, um, you know, smearing the Watergate prosecutors, smearing the Irvin committee, smearing the Rodino committee. Um, you know, I, I think very much Nixon gets through if he ends up, you know, with anything like the supportive media environment that the conservatives have today. Was that one of the reasons that you, that you wrote Watergate, a new history was to put the you know, to bring out all the checks and balances and all the different parts of it and to sort of put the journalism piece of it in its proper context. I mean, to give it, it had weight, but it didn't have the huge weight of what you, I mean, I think you say it so well just now, the story we tell ourselves about Watergate, which of course is a movie story. Yes, right. It, it It's not why I set out to tell the story because I think actually, one of the things I always say about the book is my biggest mistake in starting out to write the book was thinking that I understood the story of Watergate before I started researching it. Because um, I was like, I've read all the President's Men. I've seen the movie a thousand times. I, you know, grew up with this as a budding journalist in the 80s and 90s. Like, you know, what could be more straightforward? Um, and then actually, you know, what turns out is this incredibly different complex 
and, and you know much more criminal story than um we than we're used to telling um you know one of the things that really stood out for me in my research is you know the, the line that you hear in journalism all the time the line you hear in crisis communications all the time about watergate is you know the cover-up is always worse than the crime and sort of the idea that you know, Richard Nixon's problem was the Watergate cover-up and not the crimes that led to Watergate. Um, and actually, when you go back and you look, no, actually, the crimes of Watergate were, you know, arguably the second worst set of crimes we have ever seen from a president of the United States. Right. We know what the first is. Yeah. Um, if you were to say, and I haven't prepared you for this, so just off the top of your head, you know, if we say to ourselves that Woodward and Bernstein are the sort of the heroes of Watergate and Ben Bradley, who are, you know, a half dozen, if you will, of the other heroes of the Watergate story? Just name some of them in a little bit of, a, you know, just a little bit of what they did. Yeah, sure. I mean, you have, you know, Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski, who steps in as the special prosecutor after him. Um, you know, the whole special prosecution team, which is this incredible set of great uh, prosecutors. Um, I actually just got to meet one of them in person uh, last week at the Texas Tribune Festival. I had lunch with Jill Wine Banks, who's sort of now famous to people as a um, MSNBC legal analyst, but is, you know, got her start as one of the only females involved in the Watergate prosecution team. You know, you have Pete Rodino, the chairman of the impeachment committee. You have Sam Irvin, the head of the Senate investigative committee. You have Republican senators, Lowell Weicker, who is incredibly central to the investigation in the Irvin committee. And then, you know, even Howard Baker, the the lead Republican on the Irvin committee, who starts off as a vehement defender of the president and ends up being disgusted by his level of criminality and the corruption around the president. Um, you know, John Doerr, the House Impeachment Committee staff director, you know, is is an incredible force in this story as well along with, you know, one of his junior staff, a rising Arkansas lawyer named Hillary Rodham. Right. I also think about, and people do talk about the role of Barry Goldwater in going to President Nixon and saying, uh, guess what, it's over. Um, do you think of him as an important figure and, and as a kind of a hero of Watergate? Um, it's an interesting question because, again, Goldwater gets this real lionization in history for making that march, um, you know, being the person that Congress sort of sends down to tell Richard Nixon it's time for him to go. Um, it's an incredibly important moment in Watergate. Um, I don't know that it actually... It, matters that much that it was Barry Goldwater in the end who did it. Um, you know, what was significant was that delegation being dispatched in the first place. 
And, and they were really water. reading the room. They knew what was going to happen, yes. and they had to transmit and communicate that to Nixon, which they did successfully. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I actually am eager to get into what's happening now. But before we do, just briefly, could you describe the, the media environment, the journalism environment of the early, mid-1970s, you know, perhaps the contrast to today. But, you know, what what was it? Was it just a couple of big newspapers and the networks and kind of that was it? Yeah, it was a it was definitely a much more straightforward media environment. Um, I, I think that there are three major forces that really matter during that time. Um, you know, it is an era of incredibly well-staffed, large newspapers, you know, both morning and afternoon newspapers. I mean, this was an era when you still had, you know, morning papers and afternoon papers um, and some pretty vicious inter-city or intra-city competition between, you know, the the Washington morning papers, the Washington afternoon papers, etc. Um, you have the three big networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Um, CBS is really at the height of its power in this era. Walter Cronkite, uh, the voice of the uh, evening news with his famous tagline, you know, every night, and that's the way it is. And then the other force at the time is the Newsweeklies. Um, you know, Time Magazine and Newsweek uh, really drive a lot of the reporting through much of Watergate you know, coming out each week as they do on Mondays to really sort of set the tone for the stories that unfold and the stories that matter for that week. With original reporting or with more sort of summarizing and synthesizing or both? Both. Um, Time in particular has a really incredible reporter in this era uh, around Watergate named Sandy Smith, who is their sort of main... FBI source, their main FBI reporter. He's from Chicago. He covered organized crime in Chicago and developed this incredible network of federal law enforcement sources that he really brings to bear on a lot of Watergate helping to break this story wide open. Um, again, in that summer of 72 and fall of 72, as part of that sort of constellation of journalists with Jack Nelson and uh, Walter Ruggaber from the New York Times and Woodward and Bernstein and and Cy Hirsch. I mean, I'm so fascinated by this era and I love talking with you about it. And I want to get to kind of the other lens that I'm looking at this question through. And that is January 6th. And when I say that, I'm using it as a sort of symbol of all of Trumpism, particularly Trump's quite apparent criminality. And so I guess what I'll ask you to do is to compare the media environment now with with Watergate, with the Watergate era, um, and just as a way to kick this off a little bit. You mentioned Fox News, and that is hugely different. We also have the internet. We also have social media. Yeah. So, you know, just take us through it a little bit. What has, you know, what have been the most consequential changes in terms of of the media environment as it affects how this is playing out. Yeah, I think that there are three that really stand out for me. One is speed and velocity. 
we're operating in a media environment that unfolds much more quickly than the environment did in 72 in Twitter, on social media, particularly in the Twitter of January 6th, um, you know, when, when Twitter was at its peak. I mean, it's a uh, sadly a very different beast now in September of 23 than it was in January of 21. And you have uh, both sort of those levels of speed and velocity. You have an overall, I think the second big change is the overall fracturing, which is, you know, most of those heavyweight newspapers are gone and they are... Or much withered. Yeah, or much withered, yeah. And that they are they've been replaced with in some ways a much more dynamic and uh, uh you know wide ranging press corps yeah than you had before um you, you know the press corps of 1972 is overwhelmingly white overwhelmingly male and it is, you know, today represented by, you know, many online outlets uh, that, uh, you know, are relatively new to us, you know, reporters of a much wider range of diverse backgrounds and, you know, spread across a much wider number of news organizations. Then you have, I think, the third layer that really does matter, which is the partisanization and echo chamberization of a lot of partisan media. And that that is allowing viewers and readers to exist in bubbles of information that, uh, are much more uh, ideologically pure and ideologically driven than the mainstream news organizations of 1972, 73, 74. You're kind of making it sound like it's equal on the, I mean, you didn't say this, but when, when I hear people talk about partisan media, it sounds kind of like, yeah, it's just it's the same. There's the right wing media and the and the left wing media. Do you actually see it that way? So I think both bubbles exist. The conservative right wing media ecosystem, which you know we normally sort of shorthand as Fox News, but I think is much bigger and more pervasive and pernicious uh, in terms of you know websites. Uh, like the Daily Caller and Washington Free Beacon, as well as, you know, this huge army of talk radio hosts that are far more influential on a day-to-day basis than most Americans give them credit for. Um, you know, there's a lot of conservative talk radio out there that no one really pays attention to on a daily basis that are listened to by, you know, millions and tens of millions of Americans. And that that ecosystem is much more dangerous to American civic discourse than the left wing one. 
And that's true both in terms of its power, but also its commitment to the truth. Its lack of commitment to the truth. It, yes, its lack of commitment to the truth specifically. That the the sort of conspiracy theories and l outright lies that are allowed to not just permeate, but sort of filter up through that ecosystem are far more damaging to American democracy than anything that you see that comes out of the left-wing media. So, you know, we're, as I said, we're, we're in the middle of this still. I mean, maybe not at the very beginning of it, but we're, we're still experiencing the aftermath of January 6th. And, you know, I don't know where exactly if we were to make uh, a comparison to to Watergate, maybe we'd be in mid nineteen seventy three or something. Right now, that's like off the top of my head. I don't really know if that's true. Mm -hmm. But are the systems that that worked in Watergate are they still working today? So I think you hit on something before I answer your your underlying question. You hit on something in that introduction that I think is really important for people to think about is, you know, I've spent the last couple of years covering this story, you know, almost a decade now, really covering this story very closely. And the, the Trump story, I, I mean, from the Russia 2016 election on forward, which, by the way, I think one of the things that really stands out is Watergate isn't one burglary. It is a dozen interrelated but distinct scandals and conspiracies and crimes uh, up to and including, you know, pretty good allegations of outright treason as Richard Nixon uh, torpedoed the, uh, we, we now understand Nixon torpedoed the Paris peace talks in the fall of 1968 to keep the Vietnam war going in order to encourage his presidential victory that fall. And that it's really sort of all one story that that event, what's now known as the Chinoa affair leads directly into you know, Nixon's Pentagon Papers craziness, which leads into the Watergate burglary and the dirty tricks and the campaign finance allegations. And, you know, it ends up being Watergate sort of spirals into a, a saga that is so much bigger than what we, we normally think it, uh, it is. It's, uh, you know, it ends up 69 people end up facing criminal charges out of Watergate. Um, and Trump's all one story too. the more that we get into this, you know, you can draw a pretty straight line as we now understand it from, you know, the Russian attack on the 2016 election to, you know, the firing of Jim Comey to the Mueller investigation, to the obstruction of the Mueller investigation, to the Mueller report which leads to the Zelensky perfect telephone call, which sets up the first impeachment that then sort of lays the groundwork for the big lie and the attacks on the election integrity in the fall of 2020, and then ultimately up to January 6th. 
So to me, like the Trump story is all one story in the same way Watergate all ends up being one story. The difference is. Well, yeah. please come back to that in a second. I'll make sure you do. But what if you could say it in a sentence or a phrase or a couple of phrases? What is that story? What you know, what is that story? It is a concerted effort by Donald Trump to undermine the legitimacy of free and fair elections in the United States. The challenge is, and this is really important for people to remember and understand, we don't know where we are in the Donald Trump story right now. We know how Watergate ends. It ends with Nixon's resignation and Nixon leaves office. The criminal cases continue to unfurl for almost a decade afterward, but we sort of know how Watergate ends. We don't know whether we are in the beginning, the middle, or the end of the Donald Trump story. Well, we're not at the beginning. We might be. We might be still in the early stages of Donald Trump's influence on American politics. If he returns to office next year and then, you know, doesn't leave office, we might look back on the first four years of Donald Trump's presidency in his first term as, you know, the good old days. And I think that that's one of the things that I try to really make clear in every time I talk about Donald Trump is I think that there's sort of this sense that we we know how the Trump story ends. In an orange jumpsuit with Joe Biden having a second term. Yeah, or, or you know, that he lost office and was driven from office and, you know, that was the end of, you know, Donald Trump's peak and, you know, all of the rest of this is sort of arguing over the ashes. And I, I don't think that we know that that's anywhere near the trajectory that we're about to live through. Wow. That's that does provide some really important perspective. So, you know, all of this is a very big subject, two big subjects and a pretty short podcast. So um, I'll ask you this. When it comes to this more recent chapter, January 6th, Donald Trump, has journalism done its job? And has it done its job well? Has it done its job adequately? And if not, what should it have done better? And should what should it be doing better? It's a really important question. And it's one, you know, I know you have thought a lot about over the last couple of years. I've thought a lot about it. You and I have talked a lot about it over the last couple of years. Um, and I think that the results are pretty mixed. You know, I think that journalism has done some of its job. It has done some of its job very well. It has learned some really important lessons, perhaps not as quickly and as aggressively as we now wish it had about how you combat, you know, outright lying and obfuscation by uh, someone at the sort of level of Donald Trump. I worry a lot this summer and fall 
that it's sort of slipping back into, you know, some of the worst stuff that we saw in 2016 in the election um, and sort of the attempts, you know, what are now almost a decade old at this point of like continually trying to normalize what Donald Trump does and that you, you know, I'm, I see all of this polling come out right now, you know, to the extent that you can pay any attention to polling, which is its own, you know, multi-part podcast series, um, about, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden being effectively tied in national polls. That says to me that journalism is not succeeding in the way that it should. Because it's focusing on something that doesn't even reflect reality and isn't that important. Well, and that it, it, if anyone is walking away from consuming modern media thinking that these are sort of equivalent choices, that these are sort of, you know, two paths diverged in the little wood and one was, you know, Biden's second term and one was Trump's second term, you know, that's to me is a real failure of journalism. So you're saying by this this emphasis on polling, we seem to reduce it to simply the horse race and the horse race between two parties and two guys. And, you know, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose and life goes on when it's really the stakes are much higher. The stakes here are unlike anything we have ever experienced before in our lifetime. Um, You know, you look at, you know, we're recording this uh, on uh, in late September and, you know, one of the biggest stories of the last couple of days was Donald Trump basically saying he believes that we should execute the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley. And, you know, you sort of have this coverage of it's like, well, Donald Trump wants to execute the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And also Joe Biden's really old. Like, who knows what's going to happen to America in the future? Coming up after these messages. And and you're like, these are not the same story in any way. And you can't cover it as if these are anything like the same story. Um, and you sort of see the way that the journalism, I think, over these last, you know, three years or so of the Biden administration sort of keep trying to tell these stories of sort of normal government functioning as being either sort of too boring to cover at all or sort of scandals that are sort of somewhat falsely ginned up. Not that they don't really matter, but they're sort of falsely elevated of, you know, it's, you know, Donald Trump is reading aloud the top secret Iran war plans to people at his golf club. And also Joe Biden may or may not have heard a reporter shout a question to him about federal aid to Hawaii. Coming up, are both men corrupt, terrible criminals? It's the New York Times pitch bot. Yeah. So... Based on all of that, how well can journalism save democracy? Can journalism help to save democracy? 
um, which really is on the line right now. And, you know, as you said, there have been some good things. There's been some good journalism. There's been a lot lacking. So I'll just pose that question to you and ask you to reflect on it. Yeah, I think there's more journalism can do to defend democracy, but journalism can't do it alone. And that, to me, is the Watergate story, which is the thing that is sort of most concerning to me in the national political landscape is the locked arms of Republican officials up and down the electoral ballot and particularly in Congress that there, when you look at what's most different from Watergate, it's the difference of the behavior by Republicans in Congress, the unwillingness to believe the sort of semi-clear evidence um, you know, the unwillingness to ask hard questions and the willingness to sort of overlook what is an existential threat to American democracy because they're worried about, you know, basically getting primaried by someone even crazier than they are, which is really the dynamic that you have on Capitol Hill today is to me the most concerning question of this sort of what is America's democratic future, small d democratic future. But some of that surely has to do with the fact that there is this refuge of right wing media. Uh, not just refuge, but, uh, you know, driver of of right wing media that, you know, the extent to which these Republican officials feel like they can't go against the president, can't say the things that they actually believe, uh, is entirely a function of the extent to which they fear the right-wing media that sort of underpins their system right now. Okay. So I think that although it is very dire, I think it's a good it's a good place to kind of draw this to a conclusion. Garrett, thank you so much for this conversation. It really has been great and means a lot to me that you took the time. So thanks so much. I admire you and your work very much. Thank you. And thank you for all that you have done to try to push these questions forward in the national conversation. So this conversation with Garrett Graff was, of course, not particularly uh, a happy one in terms of the content, but I was very happy to be able to do it because of the really, I think, unusual insight that Garrett brought to the table and his commentary about where we are in the sort of Trump story or the broader story around January 6, 2021 was enlightening to me and his insight into Watergate and sort of the bigger picture around Watergate and around Richard Nixon and what the media atmosphere was like then was something that I think about a lot and have thought about a lot, but he really brought fresh insight and incisiveness to that subject. So I hope you enjoyed it. You might not 
feel particularly happy about it, but I think you'll agree that it broadened your understanding, or I hope it did anyway. There is a bonus episode coming up in just a couple of days for paid subscribers only. This podcast that you've just heard is open to all subscribers. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you so much for your support and your attention to this important subject. In addition to the podcast, you can find the full American Crisis Experience on my Substack, margaretsullivan at substack.com. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening.